in some ways, for me, looking back at the early weeks of the pandemic here in Chicago, they were, they were like a sleepover. We've been talking about it as sleepover energy those first couple of weeks, or like the first night of a power outage before things get bad. Those first few weeks, there was clarity and urgency, maybe a little creative energy in figuring out what all this would be. It was finite. We thought we could buckle down and get through it. And then even after the first extension of stay-at-home orders, for me anyway, there was still a certain kind of focus. I organized times to meet friends online. I reconnected with some very old friends. I cooked extra food and I put it in the freezer. I figured out how to go grocery shopping. I don't know, starting about month four maybe, way after that early energy was done, I started to hear and read about and feel a kind of cumulative exhaustion. And now at month six, I mean, I would say the strain is beginning to show. <laughs> A New York Times article a few weeks ago uh, declared in the headline, we're all socially awkward now. And described behaviors that I recognize in myself. A desperation to connect, but then a tendency to withdraw overreacting to or misconstruing other people's behavior. Increased self-consciousness. The article compared us all to people who've spent a year in Antarctica doing research. And I was relieved to hear that comparison, that description, to know that I may not be coming unglued after all, or at least to know that I'm not coming unglued in any kind of particular unique way, that it's a condition we're all living with in a time when structures have dropped away and when schedules have shifted and gotten fuzzy, when there's still enormous urgency, but only sort of, it's really hard to feel urgent about, just stay home. Mostly, stay home. You can argue, I think I probably have, mostly in uh, late-night college-age conversations over wine, I have argued that these social norms, the ones that have fallen away, were only ever a construct. A lot of it needed to be done away with anyhow. There were false niceties that got in the way of real, authentic human interaction. You could argue that now, living free of those strictures, we're free to be ourselves. But I have come nose to nose with myself, and I'm not that into it. Like, I'm not sure how great being free to be myself in a pandemic is. I mean, that's me alone in my place, mostly alone. That's the social, emotional uncertainty I'm living with. Me, an extrovert, I'm, I'm good with people, and now we're all socially awkward. And that's just the base layer I'm living with these days. Maybe you are too. Add to that politics, the urgent of our social ethical situations, the questions of what to do, what can be done, what ought to be done. It's chaos. She doesn't remember why she asked, but when my friend Lulu was seven, she asked her dad the meaning of life, and he turned to her with his big, loving smile, and he said to her, Nothing. It's all chaos, he told her. Nothing matters. You don't matter. He's a scientist with a lot of energy and curiosity, and he felt freed by all that chaos. He swam where he wasn't supposed to. He 
drank loads of beer. He didn't wear seatbelts. He didn't use return addresses. He rode a motorbike. And there was a time when the sleeves of his shirt kept getting in the way at the lab, and he just cut all the sleeves off his shirt. He went to work like that for years. He loved math and his daughters and the family dog. Chaos for him meant a life untamed by lies and fake commitments. Everything was on tap. But for Lulu, chaos, starting that moment when she was seven and her dad told her that nothing matters, chaos for Lulu meant a a cold feeling that started to swirl up in her. It started, she remembered that very moment. What's the point of any of it? Why go to school? Why glue macaroni to paper? Chaos for Lulu meant fear and a temptation to despair that lasted years. The fear and the temptation to despair built up in her over, I mean, all through her years until she was an adult, through years of regular life and mistakes and loss and successes until the strain started to show until she found herself living on a friend's couch in Chicago, trying desperately to figure it out. When the prophet Micah that Bethany read spoke to the people, they were not experiencing chaos. They were not in the middle of some big collapse of meaning. It wasn't a crisis like that. I mean, by some measures, things were going pretty well, although it was a time of huge change late 8th century BCE, some things were falling into place for some people. A move toward a more modern way of life with greater order rather than a bartering system, there was coming into being a way of money and and purchasing. Land ownership was consolidated. The the people were living with something of an existential threat, kind of ongoing possibility of military invasion. And that economic revolution meant that the gap between rich and poor was growing, growing pretty fast. But as far as the wealthy landowners were concerned, it was a great time. Many priests and prophets wanted in on that prosperity. It was a time I read this week that the common good was being traded for personal self-interest on the parts of courts and landowners and merchants and religious leaders, another kind of existential threat. And the prophet Micah, with rural roots, spoke into that time. He had an understanding that was rooted in the needs and politics and experience of peasant people, not the wealthy landowners. He spoke judgment to expose injustice. He spoke truth to expose inequity. He spoke hope toward a vision of the world that God dreams. And his prescription for justice and equity and setting the world to rights, well, he said, you already know it. God has told you, immortal, what is good. To do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. That's it. Probably most of you, oh mortals, know it too because it is so bite-sized. It's so handy. It's so quotable, so ringing. That bumper sticker's worth of order and direction and clarity is sufficient, said Micah. It's sufficiently urgent, said Micah. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Get out there and go do it. All right. 
there's a line of thought. I, I experienced it a lot when I was teaching kids in church where parents who weren't that religious nonetheless wanted their kids to have religious upbringing because they said they wanted their kids to know the lessons that Jesus taught. And I said, well, what lessons did Jesus teach? And sometimes they would say, Jesus taught us to be nice to everyone. That's not my understanding. I mean, it's true, certainly, that the prophet Micah was not teaching that the people of Judah should be nice to everyone. Jesus, Micah, kindness. This isn't about being polite. It's not about manners, which there's a little aside here that's kind of a soapbox. Manners are really just a codified set of behaviors that, depending who you ask, are classist and racist, and they're meant to draw lines of division and keep people oppressed. That's what manners are. It's not that. And soapbox, this isn't about embracing and taking back up a construct that has been falling away, culturally, thank God, and now maybe being prized out of the curling fingers of our society as we're on the brink of, you know, if not wholesale catastrophe, then definitely some chaos. It's not about manners. It's not about being polite or nice. It is about true, deep, difficult kindness. Years before I moved to Chicago, my brother lived here up in Andersonville. And I came to visit him. I went to a Quaker meeting that at that time, I think it still meets there, was meeting at the Japanese American Center on Clark. And one of the person, one of the people there stood to speak in the meeting and he talked about his conversion to Quakerism, which is like, if you know anything about Quakers, it's like a pretty gentle process to convert to Quakerism. And that's part of what he was talking about. He said when he joined Quaker meeting, he found out that the basically only belief in Quakerism, the way he told it, was to see the light of God in every person. He was like, that's it? It's kind of a softball. Like, I just show up here and we sit in silence and I try to see the light of God in every person? Okay. Go do it. And that's when he realized it was a really tall order. That is the kind of kindness Micah is talking about. Seeing the light of God or seeing the humanity in another person, a humanity that is as deep and full and true as your own. It's kindness that takes into account someone else's political and economic reality. Kindness that believes it when someone says, this political system, it's not working for me. This economic system is not working for me. It's working for the wealthy, for the landowners. Micah's not talking about kindness for the sake of everyone getting along. It's not even kindness for the sake of unity. It's kindness for the sake of clarity. Clarity that exposes injustice. That exposes inequity. It's kindness when kindness isn't easy. It's kindness that if it was offered to you in a time of your fragility, might take your breath away. It is simple. You know it, O oh mortal. But now, go do it. The other day I drove by this guy in an intersection when I first wrote this, I was like, he was probably 15, and then I was like, he could be 23. I have no idea. But there was something about his stillness, his watchfulness at the corner, 
the way his skinny ankles were showing between his shoes and his pant cuffs. I'm too old to know like how old he is, and I'm too old to know if his outfit was cool or dorky. I have literally no idea. But something about him, I pulled through this intersection at Montrose and Ashland, and as I drove by him, I thought, I love that guy. And not like, I love that. I love that guy. But I felt love for him. But I also knew I was getting ready to preach this, and that my easily come by affection I knew that my easily come by affection for people in the world happens much more easily in a general way or at a distance driving through an intersection. I knew that it is much more difficult for me to practice kindness of the specific, of the close up. I was driving south on Ashland and I wondered what if I had that guy in a class? What if he's a jerk? What if he's a smirker? I hate smirkers. I wrote I hate smirks, but I meant smirkers. What if that guy with his little ankles is mean to other people? What if he's not kind? Well, I thought, really committing to the thought experiment, I'd try to understand where he was coming from. I'd try to understand what kindness he had or hadn't known. But I also laughed at myself because I know myself. I know, O mortal, both what is good and how often I am unkind up close. Micah's prescription fits on a bumper sticker, on a magnet, or verse of the day calendar, but it is not easy. That's why he used the rhetoric he did to ramp up into it. What do you want from me, God? Sacrifices? Thousands of sacrifices? What, should I give you my firstborn? It sounds like Micah had heard this kind of rhetoric, which to me strikes, it's like, I've got middle school bullies on the mind, right? It's like when you say to a kid, you're like, you've gotta, you've gotta treat each other better than this. And the kid says, what? How can I help it? I can't be your best friend. And you're like, listen, you little jerk. Nobody said anything about being anybody's best friend. Just be kind. That's not all what I wrote on the page. <clears throat> That's my answer. The answer from Micah, from Jesus doesn't involve calling anyone a jerk, but it does say just be kind to this specific person based on what they need. Lulu's scientist dad allowed himself one inconsistency in all the chaos he embraced and espoused. As emphatic as he was that nothing matters. He didn't matter. Seven-year-old Lulu didn't matter. Lulu's dad treated everybody as if they do matter. He's a teacher and a parent, the kind of guy who jokes with people he doesn't know at the nursing home to see if he can bring a light of laughter to their eyes. He prioritized taking care of other people, family and strangers. Lulu herself, after her time living on a friend's couch, came back to that same idea. She wrote a book about all this. It's a great book. It's called Why Fish Don't Exist. The book ends more or less where she started. In chaos and meaninglessness. She doesn't find God. She doesn't find any order at all. She actually lets go of some. But she arrives back at something simple something she had been told was good from the time she was little. She remembers, she, she relearns that in all the chaos, we can treat each other as if we matter because to one another we do. 
to each other. We are parent, friend, a source of laughter, a way, she writes, of surviving one's darkest years. It's not easy, but it is simple. It's basic. In all the chaos, you know it. God has told you.